This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. We have a special guest on the show today. Catherine Brittnall will be talking to us about the osprey and how the bird is faring in southwest Florida, despite a bevy of challenges. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Catherine Brittenall to the show. Catherine is the president and volunteer coordinator of the International Osprey Foundation, headquartered on Sanibel Island in Florida. We will be talking with her today about the osprey, a bird much beloved by the residents of Southwest Florida. The osprey has suffered a setback due to the widespread destruction of Hurricane Ian, and she will be telling us about the work her organization is doing to help the osprey population recover. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Yes, it's great to have you on the show. Can you please tell our listening audience about yourself and the job that you do? Well, I am a retired educator who just can't seem to stop being a teacher, but When I came down to Florida in my retirement, I got involved with the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center here, the Ding Darling Wildlife Refuge, and going on bird walks and such with the Sandcap Audubon Society. I got more involved in bird watching. I fell in love with ospreys on a family vacation years and years ago in Cape Cod. My good friends owned a home there and had ospreys off their porch, and their daughter had named them Oscar and Ivory, and we went to see the ospreys quite often out in the marsh. And we still go back, you know, when we go there in the summer and put the kayaks in the water and go visit the osprey nests. It's just something that we've done for a long time. On one of those walks one day, the head of the Osprey Foundation invited me and a good friend of mine who had been on the walk at the time to join the Osprey Foundation and to start monitoring Osprey nests in Clam Bayou, the body of water right behind my home. And we were very excited to participate, put the boats in the water and got out the binoculars and the cameras and started recording data. The idea of being a citizen scientist was very exciting to me to be able to share our observations with a a wider audience and have them be meaningful. It felt really good to be a part of a good thing. And then most recently, they asked me to join the board in 2019, and things evolved to the point where now I'm the president of the association and very excited with the direction of the group because I think we're doing really important work. So tell us now about the International Osprey Foundation. When was it formed and what brought about the formation of the foundation? 
It was founded in 1981. A former mayor of ours here in Sanibel, Mark Westall, nobody knew him by that. They called him Bird Westall, was a very passionate person. And he was leading environmental canoe trips through Ding Darling. And he had an incredible mandate in his own mind to protect and uh, steward habitats and to help humans coexist with wildlife on the island. And he founded it with the idea that we could make a positive impact on wildlife and not just be a hazard or a detriment to wildlife. And he said that one of his quotes was, he prays that one day all species will eventually respect the wondrous things that are in the universe, both natural and human. And I think that's a powerful statement to live up to, but that's what we're all aiming for. And then his presidency was followed by several other really strong leaders, Tim Gardner, Jim Griffith, and each one of them what brought other things. Tim's a big accomplishment was he was one of the project leaders for getting DDT banned, which was a real existential crisis for all raptors in the 1970s. And Jim was uh, an engineer and an environmentalist, and he was the one who started building lots of platforms around the islands after the hurricanes had done damage so that the ospreys could still follow their mandate to live where they were raised. Nest fidelity is part of the biology of an osprey, and it's very strong. They will come back to the same nest year after year. And if the nest isn't there, they'll nest as close by as they can. So you can imagine how it's going to be this year after Hurricane Ian. We have a big job to do. But our commitment is to make sure that humans are enhancing and preserving the lives of the ospreys and helping them to thrive. Now, tell me on a personal level, what is it about the osprey that you like? Oh, that connection. You know, their eyes are extremely penetrating. They relate to you. They live their lives right among us and they actually interact with you. I pulled my boat underneath a nest and, you know, the bird will peer down at you and then just sort of cock its head from side to side, like, well, what are you going to do for me today? They have these golden eyes. Their eyes are yellow and the younger chicks' eyes are orange. As they mature, they become that resounding yellow, but the younger ones have orange eyes. They're binocular. They're like we are. Their eyes are in the front of their face so that they have incredible depth perception. They can see 10 feet down into the water. They fly very high to identify schools of fish, and then they can hover low like a helicopter. They'll just flutter their wings and just hang out up there until they see just the right opportunity to dive. And when they dive, they're the only bird that really can submerge itself into the water, catch their prey, and then come back out again. Any other bird pretty much does the skimming on the surface type of thing. But they're so uniquely designed. And they've been a very little of evolution, actually, on this particular species. They've been around 12 to 13 million years. They're just designed to catch fish and to do things. Their eyes have a special membrane that covers their eye when they dive so that it doesn't do damage to their eye. Their feet are designed to catch the fish. They have like the equivalent of an opposable thumb. One of their toes can go back and forth so that they can hold the fish more securely. They even know the aerodynamics. Before they will fly with the fish, they'll turn it around and make sure it's facing head first so that they are streamlined in the air. They're just an incredible bird and very, very smart. It's really something to see them plunging down at high speed into the water, feet first. Yes, it's always feet first. And it's the, one of the hardest things to teach children because they know that all people eat with their mouth and their head. 
and their face. And they've seen other birds pluck worms and things like that. And the idea that the ospreys will catch their food with their feet is just something that they find it very hard to figure out. <laughs> and it's always amazing to see them plunge in feet first and their feet are under the water. And then as they rise up, suddenly you see a fish <laughs> caught in their talons. Uh, really, it, it's, it's just an amazing sight. I mean, it's incredible. It, 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 you don't get to see it too often, even when you're you know hanging out in the right area waiting for it. It's still it never gets old. It's special every time. So tell us more about the biology and behavior of the osprey. Are these birds that migrate? They do. They actually started their migration in North America. A lot of species in the world started in Africa and Europe and then came to North America. The osprey originated in North America and they did their migration to the rest of the world by going west, actually. They went over to Asia and down to Australia, back up to Japan, and eventually to Africa and Europe, which were you know, the last ones to have ospreys. They migrate long distances. The Some of our birds here don't go very far. They just go to another place in Florida after they've raised their chicks. Others migrate to South America, Brazil and Venezuela, and areas down there that are still somewhat equatorial. And the young migrate solely based on the DNA in their brain. They do not go with their parents. They do not go in a group. It's just that when the DNA turns on at a certain age, you know, they leave and they go down to South America and they stay there for two, three years, I think. And then they'll come back to their natal home and try to find, a, you know, a place to nest near where they grew up and to take a mate there. Now, when do they start chick rearing? It depends on where they are here in Southwest Florida. They come back starting in November, December for the local birds, early January, February for those coming out from South America. And they raise their chicks in the late winter to spring here in Southwest Florida. The whole calendar just gets shifted a bit when they fly back up north to Cape Cod or the Great Lakes or the Northern States, they will raise their chicks in the summer and then migrate in the fall. It takes right. about little more than a month of incubation and about six weeks from the chicks hatching to fledging. So even in the northern areas, there's plenty of time for them to raise their chicks, teach them to fish before they migrate. Right. So tell me now about these nesting platforms. They seem to be absolutely crucial to the osprey. Osprey will nest in just about anything. The nesting platforms have been, you know, one way that humans can help them to regain their populations. So we do support platforms. We build them, we repair them in our area, and we have designs for them on our website so that people in other areas can take the benefit of our best practices. But uh, the nesting platforms are usually 24 to 30 feet high, and the platform itself is about four by four because they build a big nest. You know, these are big birds. They're the third largest raptor in North America, if not the world. And their chicks, when they are ready to fledge, are actually bigger than the parents because the parents have been sacrificing food for the sake of the chicks. For It's not that they don't eat, but the chicks get most of the food. And so we're talking about sometimes three to five full-size birds on this nest until everybody has learned to fly. It's a pretty big nest. We usually put one or two perches on there so that an adult or a fledgling can get out of the nest for a while and kind of hang out so the others have a little more room. 
we get them started with some nesting material and but basically that's part of the courtship ritual which the male will bring sticks and different things and present them to the female and you know she will accept or reject and then he will go out and get more nesting material these things can weigh up to almost a thousand pounds in some that have been built for 20 30 years they're quite large a human being can sit down in the middle of them it's how big they are so the platforms have to be really big and sturdy now i've heard ospreys collect all sorts of items i've heard of <laughs> osprey nests containing uh cell phones sneakers yep golf hats <laughs> they do find that it, they like to enhance their nests what they consider decor we would not necessarily consider decor but recently we had cause to go and do a you know a little bit of house cleaning for a pair on captiva island a drone was reported as being in the nest. So we were concerned, obviously, but then we found out that not only was the drone in the nest, but the male osprey had actually picked up the drone off the beach and taken it to the nest. Oh my goodness. And you think you want to blame some teenager or something for flying their drone into the nest, but that wasn't the case. The teenager was actually quite upset that his, his, his drone had disappeared. Oh. But when we got the finally got the bucket truck there, you know, it was, you know, all hands on deck. People were making phone calls to the fire departments, to the local power companies, to the tree landscaping companies to get a bucket truck out there to remove the drone. It was close enough to chicks hatching that we didn't want anything dangerous in the nest. But when we got the bucket truck there and we looked down upon the nest, it was like, yep, there was the drone in one corner and there was a crock in another corner up at moccasins a pair of leather sandals <laughs> this one definitely had a shoe fetish it was definitely more shoes than anything else but we've seen barbie dolls we saw a traffic cone in one once oh my goodness they are you know very inventive with their nest building and sometimes they don't know what's good for them we've had to also get the fire department involved to remove plastics bags and and things like that fishing line the rings that come around soda cans and beer cans have gotten you know taken up there and pre-pros a choking hazard so we have had to do some rescues of nests and you know they don't like it very much but they'll fly away and let you clean up their nest and then you know as soon as you lower the bucket you know back down their back it's a myth that a parent would abandon their nest and leave their chicks we would not do it with chicks present unless the chick were in danger. That's where like Osprey cams are really helpful. But to go into a nest when you know chicks are present, we need the permission of Florida Fish and Wildlife. And we have to make a pretty good case for that because otherwise it's we're supposed to let nature take its course. So there's a lot, you know, that I've learned <laughs> that I didn't know before. It's always exciting to learn new things. So so tell us about some of the challenges facing the Osprey in Southwest Florida right now. Last year, I would have said that one of the primary things is runaway development, not leaving enough habitat for the ospreys to come back to, cutting down the trees that they nest in, not providing enough protections legally in the permitting process to say you can't build your home from boundary to boundary. You have to have you know some green space on there and you can't cut this tree down and put that together with the destruction from uh, Hurricane Ian in this area. We were quite concerned and about the devastation and what that would do to the osprey population. The other big one is water quality. The big threat in the past years has been the effects of toxic algae blooms, the effect that they have on the fish and then the ospreys at the top of that food chain. 
And if there's a big fish kill, Osprey will only take live fish. So if there's not enough fish after one of these algal blooms, the populations drop. They will not lay as many eggs. They will not be successful at raising their chicks. The population and productivity of the nests will go down. So anything related to water quality, the releases of blue-green algae from Lake Okeechobee down the rivers towards the Atlantic and towards the Gulf have also contributed to the red tide, you know, algae blooms. So I would say the water quality issues and overdevelopment and habitat loss are the big deals. We survived the DDT, but it's a pretty big, you know, the ospreys are considered a sentinel species. They let us know. And if you look at graphics of our populations coming up and down, like all graphs go, the low points are usually following a disaster like a hurricane, because usually the year after a hurricane, we have toxic algae blooms. And then in areas that are under a lot of development, the nests just disappear from one year to the next 10, 15 nests can just disappear. Right. And so for our listeners, so they understand a toxic algae bloom affects the fish in the water. The osprey then eats the fish and they become affected by the algae, which can take the form of uh, neurological problems, paralysis. There's a whole range of symptoms that can occur from this toxic algae. It's usually more the younger birds. The mature osprey just go farther out in the Gulf or inland to freshwater lakes, and they usually survive. The younger birds are the ones who don't know how to discern these things. They would eat the fish. It definitely is a neurological disease. We see it a lot in the shore and wading birds population as well. Pelicans, egrets, and the wading birds are also greatly affected by cormorants. And it's just so sad to see. You think it's like a bird doesn't fly away when you walk up to it. It looks drunk. You know, it's just a very sad, sad, sad situation. And Our local wildlife hospital, the Clinic for the Rehabilitation of Wildlife, has done a lot of great research on different interventions that can be done to help the populations of birds affected by red tide. And they've come up on a couple of successful formulas that they use to treat these birds. But it's not just that it aerosolizes, it affects humans, those who have asthma or any kind of lung problem, you can tell on a day that there's bad red tide, you're coughing, the air doesn't feel right. And it's a naturally occurring thing, but with climate change, it's lasting longer and it's being fed by the nutrients of people who overuse fertilizers and contribute to the the nitrogen load of the situation. Right. We just had a guest on the show a few weeks ago who said that The latest numbers are that a thousand people move to Florida every single day. It's scary. Yeah. It's just overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. of course, you know, they're mostly baby boomers and every baby boomer wants that dream of retirement house in Florida with the big green lawn and those lawns just scream for fertilizer and pesticides. One of the other groups that I've been with on the island is with SCCF, which is a a community conservation foundation that is also promoting the use of native plants and hardscapes to make sure you don't necessarily have to plant a lawn to have a beautiful sanctuary here in Florida. And a lot of people on this island is highly encouraged that you use quite a good ratio of, of native plants because they survived the hurricane. They will come back. Some of them not as successfully, that's for sure. 
but I have plants that were down to the ground looking dead that are now doing just fine and they're coming back. With a little bit of training and knowledge, you can create, you know, a really beautiful sanctuary of a yard without having it be grass. That is great to hear. So tell us, what is the foundation doing to help the osprey? Well, right now, again, we have a network of volunteer monitors who go out and watch the nests and report on all of the things that are going on, hazards, nest productivity. They will watch the nest through the nesting season, take notes on the chicks and you know how many there are. And we report our data to an international database called Osprey Watch. And that is the basis for being able to be an advocate and a voice for the natural world with the decision makers in Tallahassee and Congress. We feel very strongly that it's our job to provide them with the data that they need to make the right decisions. And we also have three basic pillars. One is to preserve, which the Osprey data and the nest platforms and things like that to preserve and protect the species. But we also have an educational pillar and a research pillar. And we support through grant programs, international Osprey research all over the world as well as here in the United States. Most recently, we had supported you know, a student from William & Mary about overfishing of certain fish in the Chesapeake Bay that is the you know, main supply of food for the osprey in that bay. We've given grants to an individual in Belarus who is working with his government to make more of their habitat protected in his country. Unfortunately, that research was interrupted by the war in Ukraine. So, but we continue to stay in touch and would use his expertise in helping us here because the things that he was pioneering there are are valuable all over the world. We have grants in the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa. There is a ground dwelling osprey in that area that lives on the cliffs. And if you saw what they had to do to monitor those nests, a two-hour hike up onto a cliff and then down, and they were handing the, the birds up and down to band them in a sack. You know, they would put the baby in like a pillowcase and haul it up to the top of the cliff and put on the band and measure it and make sure that everything is okay with it, and then lower it back down and get the next chick. And then they would climb back up the cliff and then walk another two hours back to their car. So it really humbles you to see that there are people all over the world who love these birds and find that preserving them is really not just good for them, but for all humankind as well. Well, it sounds like you're doing some wonderful work. So just getting back to Hurricane Ian for a moment, how many nesting platforms were destroyed by the hurricane? Well, we don't have a count on all of them yet, but right now the latest numbers on our spreadsheets are about 82. Wow. we monitored last season over 130 nests, but some of these nests are actually new nests that we didn't know were there. We have a kind of a mixed blessing with this hurricane because our vegetation was so thick prior that we didn't even know that some of these nests were there. We've expanded our monitoring range to some of our neighbor islands, Pine Island, Captiva Island, and Estero Island. And on those islands, we didn't even have a complete list of all the nests that there were, but out of destruction came a wonderful thing. People wanted to know what they could do. So we asked them to you know, just get in touch with our website. And if they see something to say something to become a part of our village. And we have had an overwhelming response from the public about nest platforms that need repair, those that are okay. We've had volunteers come out and say, I would like to help. 
do you need any more monitors? Do you need people to build? And we now have, through the goodness of those things, most of the information came from good citizen scientists who want to do something to give back. And we're really, really grateful for that. Our biggest challenge right now is being able to have the assets to actually go out and fix all those nests. We have the platforms, we have volunteers willing to build them, but we need bucket trucks. We need boats or barges and people to you know put it in the poles. And we need some builders that are not busy building other people's homes right now, you know, to come and help us slip these 40 pound platforms up onto the top of the pole. We have repaired some and we are committed to repair them all, but it's going to take us some time. And we just, are, we're not too proud to go begging for more assets. <laughs> well, that is wonderful. So now let's suppose you were talking to Florida residents who live along the water. What would you suggest they do to help the osprey? I guess the best thing they can do is to keep an eye on on them if they are nesting nearby, report people harassing them. You're not allowed to remove an osprey nest during a nesting season if it is active. If your neighbors are just sick and tired of the bird being on their chimney and they decide to take them down without a permit or permission from the FWC, those kind of things need to be reported because the population can't succeed if it's a versus situation. It can't be humanity versus the, the osprey. The ospreys need advocates. And if they're willing to you know, volunteer their time and talent, we'll take that too. But I think the ospreys are smart enough to know that humans can be a benefit to them. That's why they've adopted the platforms and are successfully nesting on them. But they can't always tell that a human being is not going to want them on their chimney or pooping on their driveway or something from the tree nearby to take the opportunity to really get to know them. And they're really only going to be in that state for a month or so. You know, they're going to be able to live their lives without the poop for the three quarters of the year. So I think the most important thing they can do is to also look out for the issues that threaten not only the ospreys, but everyone, the water quality issues and the issues of habitat destruction. If there's gonna be a lot of development in their community, go to the town meetings and speak up for them. Speak up for wildlife that need to have a place to live. I'd like to thank Catherine Brittenall for joining us today. You can find out more about ospreys by going to the International Osprey Foundation website at ospreys.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye.